Welcome to In the Isles, a movie and TV podcast. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Daniel Acton. This week, we'll talk about what we've been watching. We have some real, real news. And we've got our second double bill of Welcome to the Blumhouse Films. It's Evil Eye and Nocturne. Ooh! That's getting people geared up for Halloween. Horror. Or is it horror? Ooh! Again. What have you been doing in the intervening seven days? I've made a complete and utter arse out of myself again. Last night, had a therapeutic bath, listened to a podcast, followed my standard regime when I get out of the bath, went into the spare bedroom, which is coincidentally where all my pyjamas are, and I just thought, I'm not rushing stuff, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand here and look at my phone for the next few minutes, which I did, I then looked up, which I'd failed to do throughout those three minutes, to see that my blinds were completely and utterly open with me standing stark bollock naked for anyone who is <laughs> in close proximity to see. Now, it was pitch black at the time, but I instantly remembered that I'd been outside prior to this and my neighbours had people round in their garden. And rather than just doing the obvious thing where you just duck and then just leave the room and forget all about it, I decided to military roll on top of the bed, jump up with my man boobs flapping around to grab the blind and twist it, all the while thinking, they've not seen it, they've not seen it, which then was met with just uproarious laughter that I could hear outside. So they have seen it. They've definitely seen it. And by it, I mean everything. I've seen it. It's too late. They've seen everything. I nearly cried about this. So my... (laughs) My partner, she was just wetting herself laughing. And I said, it's not funny. This is not funny. I have to face these people. Bear in mind as well, my next door neighbor is my landlord, which makes this 10 times worse. So just to clarify, the bed was between you and the window. Yeah. You've rolled forward over the bed and then pulled the blinds in one motion. It was... Just so I can picture it properly. You don't want to. It was a fluid action. But probably, I was trying to explain this to Charlotte as well. Like, if they'd seen me just standing there naked, that's bad. If they've seen the role in itself, that is also bad. If they've seen me just jump up in desperation, panicking, panting, trying to desperately get the blinds to close, they're all bad. It doesn't matter if they just saw an element of it. It's just bad. You know, it's that it's that you moved closer to the window. Even I can't make sense of what logic was going through my head at that time now, because I just should have just ducked. Just duck. I wonder in those kind of situations, who is more at fault? Are you indecently exposing yourself or are they violating you by looking in the window? It's it's me who's at fault, isn't it, really? It's just those blinds are never open, ever. I don't know what to say. I'm just picturing the role and... That one one side of you was visible, but you showed them even more. Like you opened up more to be seen all sides by rolling. I mean, I felt the need to share as some sort of therapy, but I don't want to think about it anymore. Can we move on, please? Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. We've got a dedicated listener in Virginia, in America. We know this because we can see this on our podcast apps. So if that's you, write in. Say hello. Reveal yourself. Put a name to your number. 
which we won't read out on the podcast, but you can you know sign it off in your email. In the Isles podcast at gmail.com. That's the one. Anywho, James, what has graced your TV screen this week? In keeping with the spooky horror film theme genre, I watched on Netflix To The Lake, or as people in our area of the country would say, To Lake. That's the joke there. So this is brand new on Netflix. I went to watch Emily in Paris because I was looking for new stuff on Netflix, but I saw this as well and thought, oh, that's an interesting thumbnail. I'll watch it. And when I watched it, it wasn't in the top 10. And I thought I found a hidden gem on Netflix that's new, but it was in the top 10 by the end of the week that I was watching it. So I guess that makes it a hit. I would describe it as the Russian Walking Dead, but it's very cold and everyone wears winter clothing instead of summer clothing, and there are no zombies. It's about a virus that spreads very, very quickly, and lots of people die as they're spewing blood and their eyes are turning white. It doesn't deal with the wider picture of the virus. It's about the relationships within this group that's trying to travel across the country, hence my comparison to The Walking Dead. The main character is Sergei, and he's with his girlfriend and her teenage son, and they're joined by Sergei's ex-wife and their very young son. And there's a second couple along for the ride with a teenage daughter, and the main drama is between the ex-wife and the new girlfriend. They hate each other. They're fighting over Sergei because of the past and the teenage boy and teenage girl what you can imagine what happens there it reaches its natural conclusion quite quickly and it's all wrapped up in them trying to get to the lake and dealing with being chased and finding places to sleep and stealing fuel and there's good diversions like finding a small village that's revolting against the military intrusion that's going on visually it's really strong There's some interesting choices with colours and lighting, some dream sequences out of nowhere, even some night vision at one point. The snowy setting of Russia looks good. A strong recommend for this one from me. Unlike Oktoberfest last week, I really enjoyed it, binged it really quickly. The only criticism that I would have is that society collapses very quickly. Episode one goes from this new emerging virus being on the television news to rogue soldiers raping pregnant women really quickly but once they get away from moscow and go on their journey to lake the rest of the world is forgotten about and it's just about these characters and their drama very intense very engaging and only eight episodes so it gets straight to the point okay risky time to bring something like this out really is it not risk a bit of a pandemic fatigue yeah, I've seen some reviews that say it's good, but the timing's bad, which is is fair. It might be a little too close to home. But as I said, it doesn't deal with lots of harrowing scenes of people being sick and packing out hospitals. You don't see that many of the infected people at all. It really is very focused on this small group of people just trying to cross the country to somewhere safe as they avoid the calamity that's happening behind them in Moscow. Or Moscow. Do you get the sense that this is an alternative version of history where we could end up in this exact situation in months to come? Or does it feel very far removed from what we're going through at the minute? It feels like what would happen if the mortality rate was higher than it is. 
I'm interested. I'm interested. I, I, I'm, I think it's on my watch list. I, I will give that a go, I think. What else? I watched the new hit documentary, David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet, which is a really good idea for a documentary, I thought. It's David Attenborough saying, I was born in the 1930s. I started my career in the 50s. The world looked like this when I was young. There was more wilderness. There were fewer people. And now I'm 93 and look at the world as it is now. And it tracks his vision of the world. So that works really well. Only someone suffering from some kind of mania would disagree with what is being put forward. It's basically climate change is happening. Let's do something. It's a highlight reel for the things that you probably already know. And British viewers may have already seen these exact video clips before. There's melting ice claps, deforestation, death of coral reefs, overfishing, chicken in battery cages. It's all very grim. It reminded me a lot of The Social Dilemma, the social media documentary. It's covering the main points. We know it's bad. It's depressing. Thank you. Now I hate the world is what it ends up making you feel like. It does try to end optimistically with some solutions. One is not eating meat, but as the credits were rolling, Netflix suggested that I watch American Barbecue Showdown. And the trailer for that starts with someone saying, the beef is amazing, especially when it's dipped in chimichurri, right after Attenborough said, don't eat meat, which is unfortunate. And that just showed to me it's not going to happen. These suggestions are great. I'd love it, but we're, we're too far in. You can't just ask entire industries to stop existing. I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm not. I recently read a book called Overshoot, The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change by William R. Catton Jr., published in 1980. And that gives quite a sobering view of the future of humanity. So when I was watching A Life on Our Planet, it was hard for me to reconcile the optimism they were trying to drum up towards the end with the vision that's laid out in Overshoot. But I would recommend this documentary. It feel quite far removed from his BBC ventures then, I take it. It takes for granted that you know David Attenborough, you've seen all his documentaries, or you're at least aware of what they are, and he's reflecting on, okay, I made these documentaries, but actually this was going on. Or I didn't know at the time that I was seeing like the last gasp of this wilderness. So I think it's different in the sense that he's allowed by Netflix to go full-on campaign mode. This is happening, we need to do this, which I don't think he does on the BBC, unless he has in his very latest ones. I'd be interested to see how this documentary came about because it's odd that he has sided with Netflix and chose to produce this documentary with them rather than obviously quite that quite a strong relationship that he's built up with the BBC. Maybe they presented him with the idea. What else is interesting is that I want to say a few years ago, I think it was a few years ago, he made some comments about overpopulation. He basically said, there are too many people. The problem is that there's too many people. We are the problem. And it was met with some resistance. And this documentary is a kind of reworking of that idea. It's a more palatable version of humans are the problem. Please realize that. Penis. <laughs> Sorry, where are we going with this? This is my next viewing option, styled as Pen15. It's a Hulu original comedy on Sky and Now TV. Have you heard of this? Because I hadn't heard of it. 
I think I'm vaguely aware of its existence, but nothing more in depth than that. I got a recommendation for it because season two has just come out and I fully love this program. I've just watched all 17 episodes in a week. It is about two girls joining middle school in America in the year 2000, roughly, and all the cringe comedy awkwardness that comes with that. But there's a twist. The two main characters are played by the adult writers of the program. Are you following me? Yeah, I just struggle to see how that would really work, but go on. Well, it doesn't make sense, but that's why it's also funny. Just that premise itself is funny. This brought pure joy to me. It's full of nostalgia for the early 21st century. Dial-up modem, Spice Girls, AOL Instant Messenger, Stone Cold Steve Austin t-shirts. It's a classic story of misfits trying to fit in. But what makes everything more funny is that the two main characters are adults acting like children with child actors who are acting more together and mature. Even visually, it's just constantly funny because you have this running joke where Alex, the cutest boy in school, every time he walks in, everything goes into slow motion and there's this romantic music coming on. But it's an adult, 34-year-old actress looking at him going, oh my God, there's Alex. Wouldn't work if the genders were flipped. I was just thinking that myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to talk about comedy because I don't just want to get into like repeating it and it not being funny. But I'll just give you one example. There's an episode where they get into witchcraft, these two best friends, and they become convinced that they have the power to manipulate what is happening in the world. So they get into chanting and doing witchcraft. But they're told off eventually because Maya starts putting hair in this boy's locker that he fancies and... It's not funny if I describe it at all, but out of nowhere, out of nowhere, there's suddenly like emotion and drama coming out of it as well as these young people played by 34 year olds go through the drama of life that comes up. And it's like you're seeing these adults relive their childhood trauma, which is just really interesting. It's such a good idea. It's brilliant. I'd love it. Sounds similar-ish, apart from the hook of the writers playing younger versions of themselves. But yeah, sounds similar to Young Offenders. If you had to pick one for a light-hearted comedy to see you through a lockdown period, which would it be? I'll go Pen15 because I have fully binged that completely. But with Young Offenders, I didn't get past the first series. It just drifted away. So it's based on my own actions. I'd have to say Pen15. Okay. I'm sold. I need something a bit more uplifting. So I'm going to delve in and let you know what I think about it. Tell you you're wrong, perhaps. Yeah. We've previously reviewed The Wrong Missy on one of our first episodes. And with Wrong Missy style comedy, it comes from a place of hatred. And (laughs) you can't love anything about it. It seems like even the makers of the film hate all their own characters. But this comes from a, a good place, I think. It comes from a good place and there are good things being said in it, even though it deals with pain like all good comedy does it's a good thing that they've made i think yeah i'm sold i'll watch it so that's enough from me what have you been watching well in an effort to recycle content because i've not watched anything no that's not what i'm doing last week i'll give my first impressions of the haunting of blind manor i've now creeped into a further six episodes so i feel more informed to give an opinion on it and my opinion hasn't changed i'm still really enjoying this season I alluded to the fact that the horror has been dialed down a lot in this season. And if you are expecting more of the same 
as you were with The Haunting of Hill House, you're definitely not going to get that at all, unless there's a huge dramatic change in the next few episodes that I've got left. It is not concentrating on that horror element. I am appreciating the focus on the story rather than the ability for the program to freak you out. It's more, and I'm going to coin this, melancholic gothic drama, if that's a thing. It's not, but it is now. Underpinning the whole story, it does still have this uneasy atmosphere and a sense of foreboding, and to a certain extent, sadness. There's a real deep sense of history, not only to the manor itself, but the characters that reside in it. And you get a nice array of characters here from the central character of the nanny that I spoke about the plot last week, so I won't bore you again. Straight through from her to the people who work in the manor, such as the housekeeper, the chef, the gardener. They've all got their own backstories, which are compelling in their own right. It does feel as though this is really a thorough exploration of grief and love, and it's just done in such an accomplished way. Warning, though, don't get too settled in your seat and what you perceive this programme to be, because what appears to be a very straightforward ghostly tale takes a really sharp turn at the episode five mark, leaving you with a complete what-the-type reaction because I've no idea where it's going next. It's completely done a number on me. I didn't see it taking this turn of events. It's it's all a bit vague, what I'm saying, but I don't want to spoil anything. I just hope that the final episodes live up to the calibre of the rest of the season so far. You know what I find really weird about this show? And this is definitely a personal reaction of mine. I don't see many people feeling this way. But for something branded as a horror, I've found it really pleasant and comforting to watch. There's something really charming about the setting, and I've just got quite accustomed to it. Almost 90% of this story takes place within the manor and the, the estate itself. But I'm just swept away by it, and I'm really loving it so far, and therefore would highly recommend. That sounds good. I'm finding it hard to resist because it's the number one show at the moment. Oh, is it? Yeah. Get it watched. Get it watched. What else have you been watching? I can't tell you what propelled me to watch this at all, but I watched Blackpink the documentary on Netflix about the K-pop band Blackpink, hence why it's called Blackpink. It's a documentary about their prominence within the industry, something that I know absolutely naff all about. This band was produced or manufactured, most people would say, by YG Entertainment, who are the same company responsible for the nightmare that is Gangnam Style. So already I was like... Don't know if I can see this through. I hate that song. It was interesting to learn something about a subject I do know nothing about, but I really do wish there'd been a bit more depth to it. I feel as though they wanted this to be quite an intimate portrait of the band themselves, but it's too safe. It isn't probing at all. It's annoying though, because it touches on within Korea, there's this like training program that they enter at a really young age and they're separated from the families and they basically eat, breathe, sleep music 24 seven, but they don't add any context to it other than throwaway lines from the band members saying, oh yeah, we entered this training program. It's just not explored at all. There's absolutely no conflict or drama at all within the band, which just doesn't ring true. If there's none of that, then fair enough. It just, it feels too squeaky clean. Apart from telling you that they're massive and they've got huge success, it doesn't tell you why or explore any of that. They just simply are very successful and that's it. It's just so surface level that I don't feel I get to know any of the band members well enough or develop what I would consider a satisfactory knowledge about the K-pop phenomenon. I don't feel like I know any more now than I did previously. It is a straightforward, easy watch, but whether you'll actually get anything out of it or are likely to remember it in a week or two is another story. 
I suppose just like the sort of music they're trying to put out, it's bubblegum content that isn't trying to do or say anything profound. So watch it at your own peril, I guess. It caught my eye because when I lived in Japan, all the K-pop bands started to become popular and they were creeping up on the J-pop bands. It was Kara at the time who no longer exist. So I was interested to see this actual insight into it because I've never looked into it further, but you've sort of turned me off of it. Is If it's just a puff piece... Yeah, I, don't, I, th- I think the only people who are likely to get anything out of this are people who are already fans of the band themselves. The only bit that I found interesting, which is not something that the documentary goes into, is I looked them up on Spotify and I thought, oh my word, they have had so many listens, it is unreal. And I literally have never heard of them. That was insightful to me, but I did that based off my own research. Something that you may not be able to find anymore, which is a really good music documentary, Take that, have a documentary that is about the build-up to Robbie coming back and the release of the Progress album with Robbie. And you do get to see backstage arguments and Gary Barlow gets quite deep into like how dark his life got after the band broke up. That's what I want. I want a bit of sob stories. Do you know what I mean? I want to wallow in people's misery. That's all I want. And it's in black and white, so you know it's good. I'll see if I can find that anywhere, but probably not. Speaking of what you can find, should we talk about what news you found? Let's do that. It's the real thing. It is now real, real news, news. Hopefully no more coronavirus delays in the news. Delay number one. No, no. Actually, I don't think there is any since last week. We've got lucky. There's always next week, and I'm sure there'll be a few then. First off in news, related to an older episode where we discussed on Conflicts of Interest TV shows that outstayed their welcome, one of which entered my list, Dexter. Well, not only did it outlive its welcome, but they're going to do that even further by bringing it back with a revival season. Yay! Was the last season universally dissed? Yes, it was almost entirely hated by every single person who watched that programme. So there's no goodwill left to work with here, is there? Do you know what? I think people were so severely disappointed by not only that final episode, but the final season itself, that I think they want to see somebody correct the sins of the past, and that is all that we can hope for with this next season. Do you know what? I'm willing to go along with it until it comes out and it is just, again, another fail. I'm going to hold out hope because the showrunner, Clyde Phillips, he's come out and said, right, we've got 10 episodes. It's a limited revival show. And rather than it being a continuation of what happened in that eighth season, this will be almost like starting from scratch. So they're still going to acknowledge what has happened, but then it's just going to say, right, forget all that. Let's just do our own thing now and start again. And that I can go along with. It lost its way so much after season four, and yet it had so much potential. I think if they have the right person steering the ship, I think it does have the capability of being a pretty good comeback show. But time will tell. Due to start filming in 2021. Hopefully they'll make it accessible to people that haven't seen Dexter. I'm sure they will. And I'll watch it. And then pan it on this podcast. Yeah. What else is going on? So last week we reported that Cineworld were closing its doors until next year in an effort to make people redundant. 
and I didn't know whether this happened around the same time or it was a week after, but apparently now View are kind of following suit and they will shut quarter of their cinemas three days a week in a bid to reduce costs. So it's all looking very bleak and grim now. I mean, Cineworld, as I mentioned at the time we recorded the last episode, not a fan, so wasn't too bothered. But now View as well, with the luxury seating, got a very different outlook on this one. It's just not good. I didn't know this. I'd not heard this. Such a shame. Especially with how things are at the minute in the UK and, and to be honest, the, the rest of the world. There's no signs of this letting up at all, is it? We have quite an uncertain future for cinemas and I'm quite sad about that, if I'm honest. Yeah, me too. It will be sad, you know, not to have those moments. Like when you go watching Borat and everyone's wetting themselves, how many years maybe is it going to be until you get that? Or until you have an Avengers Endgame moment where everyone gasps, there's an audible gasp because there's so many people there when he grabs the hammer. Wonder Woman, please save us. Wonder Woman will save us. But if it's released after the November US election, it won't work as a piece of uh, propaganda anymore, which it obviously is. Speaking of disappointments, should we move on to our main reviews? Hello, I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Call me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you. Part two of Welcome to the Blum House starts with Evil Eye. Hey. Hey. Have we met? Wow, I use that line a lot. <laughs> I'm Sandeep. Pallavi. Beautiful name. Thank you. Emma, um, I've met someone. Pardon? This is such good news. I've been praying for a good man for you. Can you give me his date of birth? You're not checking our horoscopes. Talk to your daughter. Astrology is unscientific nonsense. Hmm. Are you wearing a bracelet? Yes. Good. It will protect you, darling. If you're not careful, bad things could happen. See, I knew if we just met him in person, everything would be fine. Faced with the challenge of adapting an audiobook that uses a series of phone calls to tell its story, Blumhouse Productions uses a series of phone calls to tell this story in the visual media of film about a paranoid mother who takes half the runtime to announce the premise of the film to her daughter. Get ready for a no-holds-barred horror thrill ride of talking in the cafe, talking in the bedroom, talking at the bottom of the stairs, and talking in the kitchen. Even though your plot synopsis feels far more applicable to the film than IMDb's, I'll tell you what IMDb says. A superstitious mother is convinced, convinced that her daughter's new boyfriend is the reincarnation of a man who tried to kill her 30 years ago. We've all had that. We've all had that. James, don't delay. See what I did there? Because, in fact, there was no delays, so that joke doesn't work. But it doesn't matter. What did you think? of Evil Eye. I think I've given too much away in my light-hearted summary on this occasion. The story is good. The story is there. This is a well-reviewed audiobook, but I don't think they did anything to make it more interesting as a film. I really liked the Indian family culture element that runs through all of it. That makes it all slightly interesting. But again, not a lot is done with that. It's just a pushy mother and a daughter who is more independent. That's the dynamic. 
that's all you get until the end. It plods along with no tension. There's some arguing on the phone, which is quickly forgotten about. The idea is, is the daughter's new boyfriend a reincarnation of the mother's evil ex? But it tries to build tension around the mother realizing that. We know it's coming. It's in the IMDb summary, but it takes way too long for it to get there. And when it does get there to say, oh, maybe he is the reincarnation, it still just plods along with no horror and then it just ends. It's not a horror film. This is not a horror film. It's too much talking on the phone. Visually, not interesting. Look back to the Vast of Night review for talking about how you can have people talk on the phone in a way that is interesting. It doesn't work. Just put them in the same country, because the parents are in India, the daughter's in America. Put them in the same country and have them actually meet each other so they're not talking on the phone all the time. And have Krishnan, who's this man, try to avoid meeting the mother and have near misses until the mother finally manages to get hold of him. That would be more exciting than phone calls. And I'm, I'm very sorry, this isn't something we do often, but I did not like the lead actress. I don't think it was a very good character. There is a bit where she laughs on the phone at her mother, but it doesn't show her in close-up. And I had this suspicion that they'd cut any close-ups out and cut around it because it was so bad that they just wanted to protect her and not show it. To go back to your classic phrase, no, boo hiss, not for me, rubbish. What did you think of Evil Eye? I'm going to struggle to add anything to my review that you've not already said, so I'm not going to pointlessly talk for no reason, other than to repeat some of the things that you've said. It's a supernatural thriller. It's not a horror. That's three now. Three films that are marketed as this horror extravaganza, and they're not horrors. So yeah, I'm repeating what you've said, but for good reason, because I'm getting annoyed now. 75% and we'll yet reveal what we think about our last film, which I forgot the name of, Nocturne. I'm not happy about this. We mentioned this might be a cinematic dumping ground for Blumhouse Pictures. It really is feeling like it at this point. Don't label them all horrors when they're not. Sorry, get off my soapbox now. Really not happy about that. One thing that I found quite jarring about this film, and I don't know if it was for you, did you notice the opening credits and think, wow, I can't remember the last time I actually saw opening credits in a film? Because that was the reaction I had. No, got to be honest, I, I, I didn't pick up on that. Right, well, that alone is the only surprising thing about this film, is the fact that it has opening credits. There's this series of flashbacks to a mother's past, which just feels so lazy and raw. I just did not care at all. The only thing that I kept thinking throughout this whole film was this would work so much better as a tacked on extra episode of the reality TV series on Netflix, Indian Matchmaking. If this was a real life story of something that happened, I'd go along with it. But as such, no, it's this absolute pile of shit horror film. In terms of things that I liked, I'll agree with you. I thought it was really refreshing to see a horror film set within a different culture for a change. But such a run-of-the-mill story is so extremely languidly paced that I just lost all patience for it completely. Half of the things that happen in this film don't make any sense. So the mother is so eager for a daughter to marry. And as soon as she meets somebody, she then instantly has an issue with how fast the relationship is moving, despite, given my prior knowledge of watching Indian matchmaking on Netflix, that is how it goes. 
that is not unusual. So why she, being so steeped in this tradition, finds that odd, I don't know. Didn't seem to make sense to me. This is just 90 minutes of a whole lot of nothing going on at all. It is with five minutes to go, which we'll reveal in spoilers, where there's any dramatic tension whatsoever. <sighs> I don't know what else to say. Not very interested in this film. By far the weakest that we've seen so far. And I just want to dispel its existence from my memory. I've taken my jumper off because I'm hot from laughing. <laughs> <laughs> really good insight that you provided there with Indian matchmaking I feel like we're fully culturally aware now that's really interesting that element of it where she's trying to do in a long distance arranged marriage that was interesting I really like that like you say refreshing to see that but nothing's done with it nothing is done with it it's wasted that element of it is good wasted the premise is good wasted um, would you recommend it? no you? no Let's move on to Nocturne. We heard your news. Juilliard, congrats, that's incredible. You're thinking of my sister B. She's going to Juilliard next year. What makes Vivian the star? Jules, I'll always be there for you. And you, whatever you are. What if I could be more? What if I could be great? All I need is a chance to prove myself. Moira Wilson was one of the finest musicians ever to grace this academy. We have decided to rerun the senior concerto competition in her memory. I stole Moira's theory book. She carved symbols all over the wall and threw herself out a third floor window. She was brilliant. The competition is a big opportunity. I have to beat her. After years embroiled in a lengthy legal battle with Darren Aronofsky, Blumhouse Pictures brings us Black Swan 2, semicolon, Nocturne, a story about musical obsession, living in your sibling's shadow, plus stealing all your sister's previous sexual conquests for yourself, all in the name of art. Or as IMDb have said, an incredibly gifted pianist makes a Faustian bargain to overtake her older sister at a prestigious institution for classical musicians. Daniel, what did you think of Nocturne? What a shite! No. <laughs> Can I ask you a question before I give my opinion? Yes. This Faustian deal with the devil, is that ever explicitly shown to us? No, I don't think that description is really accurate. And they are twin sisters born minutes apart. It's not an older, younger sister dynamic. No, I was just checking it wasn't just me and that I missed something because this was a film that I consumed over 10 sittings, not out of choice. That's nine minutes per sitting. I was quite intrigued with this film and I did, I did want to just see it through in one fell swoop, but it just didn't materialise such is life. Anyway, there's some really interesting ideas at play here. I would say that this is by far the most ambitious of all the four Welcome to the Blumhouse films. Also, more notably, the more horror of all four films by a long shot. And despite me saying there's interesting ideas at play, I do unfortunately still have some complaints. I feel as though, despite that, none of them are actually fully fleshed out or realised, which is annoying. At the heart of it, it is a look into the world of a musical artist and the sacrifices that they have to make, the immense pressure that they're placed under. 
it is a journey of self-obsession, a musical obsession, and as hinted at in the spoof summary, sibling rivalry. It does feel like, and I'm not the first person to say this, it is, I've seen this written in quite a few reviews, the comparisons to Black Swan are not subtle. It's very heavily influenced, in, in my opinion, by Black Swan. But without the visual flair of a director like Darren Aronofsky, that's not to say there isn't any flair at all. It's just slightly toned down, which I can only presume is due to budgeting constraints. The main actress I found quite weak in this. She's not awful by any stretch of the imagination, but I just didn't feel as though in some of her more emotive scenes, she just didn't sell me on what she was experiencing. I just didn't feel emotionally tied to her at all. And I feel like she was a bit out of her depth. It is, as mentioned, a lot more horrific than the other three films that we reviewed. There's a lot more frightening imagery in here. It doesn't go for the jump scare mentality. It's not that sort of horror. It's more psychological. And what I did like about this film is you get quite an open-ended climax to it in which it lends itself to several interpretations. And I did like that. Overall, I think it's really promising because this is a first-time director that I've, I've never heard of, and that's for good reason because he's a first-time director. But there's definitely a sense that he's a capable individual and that he is sure to build upon what is a very solid film here and have quite an illustrious career, we can only hope. Don't know if I've just gone all around the houses there and not explained that very well, but it was okay. I didn't mind it. What about you? I feel like I should give the context for this, which is that I watched it immediately after evil eye without removing myself from my sofa just immediately after and with it being the fourth one maybe i did feel like something good needed to come of this so i'll give that context i think it opens really strong with the unsettling imagery on the wall and the music and the death and the weird sound design that i really liked that shrieking music and because it hooked me from that really good opening it did keep my attention Evil Eye, I think, showed that you can have a 90-minute film that's somehow dragged, but I thought this nocturne was very tight. Events escalate over the 90 minutes. Drama builds, which is all you can ask for, really, and there is some danger and mystery and, like you say, horror. It's more unsettling than scary. I think you've put it well. It's a psychological horror, really. And, again, don't want to repeat what you've said, but I will. The prestigious music school setting is really good the pressure that they're under they're like athletes who spent their whole lives doing one thing and that's a really good setting for something like this and there's some good weird dream sequences and sequences of music competition and sort of demonic possession almost that doesn't go too far but it's a lower budget so there's nothing that's spectacular and it maintains the overall tone of dread, I think. I thought the cast was good. The main characters, Sidney Sweeney and Madison Iceman, the twins, I thought they played actual characters that had direction, that behaved differently from each other. There's the shy one and the confident one. That was a good dynamic. dynamic. I think that worked well. They had good chemistry. It could have explored what was going on with this diary and the Faustian bargain in the IMDb summary isn't really explained. Not explain everything, just have some more answers. I've realised now that we're at the fourth Bloomhouse film, I think these films build and build and build and then just end. They just suddenly end. And maybe that's what all horror films do, but I think that's what's happened with all of them. And you're either on board for the build or you're not. And I was on board 
with things escalating and I didn't mind the acting. Not going to go into a full hearty defence of Sydney Sweeney, but I thought she did the job. I'm not saying it was a bad performance. I just, when you compare this to The Lie, they were just 100% I am sold on you not acting this role, but you being this character. And I didn't get that with this film. It felt to me like, ah, you are acting. I didn't feel wholly captured by a performance. Yeah, the young actress in The Lie that you said was good. I've forgotten her name. You see what she was better. She was definitely better. I agree with yeah. that. I think I was taken with the overall tone of it, this film, Nocturne. So I think I just allowed a bit of leeway on the acting. But there's other creepy teachers as well that I think adds to the whole creepy music school thing. There's one strict teacher. We'll get more into it in spoilers. He kind of casts a shadow over everything. He just spends most of the time just looking at the main characters threateningly. And that adds to this whole sense of foreboding and there's something else going on. So that was good. Overall, recommend or not? Yes, I would recommend Nocturne. Would you recommend Nocturne? Out of the four films, and I feel as though I do have to compare it to the other four films because of this idea of them all being horror when they're not. I'm not simply recommending it because it's the only horror of the bunch, but also because I feel it is the better film out of all four of them. So yes, I would recommend Nocturne. Excellent. Shall we go into spoilers for both films? Yes, please. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. With Evil Eye, like we've said, it all comes to a head too quickly. In the last 10 minutes, the mother, Usha, accuses Sandeep of being the reincarnated ex-boyfriend, Krishnan. He just admits it, just cops to it and says, yep, I am, what are you going to do? I'll kill you if you say anything. Mother turns up, they have a awkward meal together. They walk from the dining table to the kitchen. There's a little bit of tension. The mother eventually just reveals it by showing her earrings. And then the guy gets killed. End of film. It all just ends so quickly. You could have had half the film of the man threatening the mother and saying, don't say anything. But it all happens in 10 minutes. And for me, that was the main problem with this film, is that wouldn't it have been so much better to have seen his snaky, slippery, evil side creep out a bit more and see how he plays the mother and the daughter off against each other, all the while being nicey-nicey to his partner's face and then just manipulating her behind her back and you seeing that manipulation and going, oh, isn't he an evil bastard? But there's none of that. In fact, up until 70 minutes in, it is, why is she being like this? Why is the mother being so horrible? He's a nice chap. He does not set a foot wrong. For 80 minutes of this film, there's nothing that even hints to this shady, horrible, abusive past. And I get that that's maybe meant to exaggerate this idea of, oh, isn't she crazy? Isn't she a crazy woman for thinking this about him? But you already know. You already know that that is going to be... It's not even a twist. It's just a natural plot development, given the type of the film that it is. It was never going to get to the end and him go, oh, I'm not evil, and I've not been reincarnated after all. Oh, can we all just have happy families and get married now? That was not going to happen. So why wait until five minutes before the end to reveal all this? It just felt like a very, very weird decision from a storytelling point of view and did not sit right with me at all. And what made it even worse was that the reveal itself is Sandeep slash Krishnan himself phones up the mother and just says, yep, I am the reincarnated boyfriend that tried to kill you. Mm. He just admits it in a phone call. 
which is not exciting. They just plop it out. He just announces it. So, oh, okay. He's just admitted it. Another problem with the film, it's so devoid of tension, as I think you mentioned, that it just doesn't carry any weight. None of the developments in the plot matter because you just don't care because there is no tension, which is extremely annoying. No, it's a, it's a wasted opportunity again. So there was a chance there to deal with a manipulative partner and Pallavi, the victim, she's not realising what's going on. The mother is begging her to realise it. It's confirmed with the audience that something's not right, but they don't do it. Just everything about it was wrong. It's such a shame because the idea was there. It's a good story. I'm sure the audiobook's good as well because that's mm. all phone calls, but it didn't work, I'm afraid. No, I completely agree. And some of the characters' actions and, in fact, dialogue just left me cringing at points. So towards the end, there's this violent encounter. I don't think it's explicitly said that they've killed him when the mother hits him over the head with whatever piece of pottery it may have been. But they're in the hospital, a mother's recovering from a stab wound, and the daughter says to her, oh, I didn't I didn't listen to you. I didn't listen to you. What, when your mum told you that your ex-boyfriend had been reincarnated into the body of your now-boyfriend? Oh, silly you. Of course you didn't believe her, because who would? <laughs> Don't be kicking yourself. It's not your fault. And then the absolute nerve, this annoyed me at the end, they choose to have the birth of a baby pretty much indicate the fact that this cycle will just go on and continue, and now he's been reincarnated into the body of somebody else. So cliche and just ridiculously unnecessary. He's definitely not crying out for a sequel this, so don't even hint at one. Yeah, it was such... I'd actually forgotten about that until you mentioned it. That was such a cheap attempt at a jump scare to make you go, oh, well, I'm, ex I'm still excited. You know, it's like sending the crowd home happy, like the classic jump scare you get before the credits. It was that, but even that just fell flat. Sandeep takes three frying pan shots to the head from Usha, the mother, and the sound effect for that, I'm sure it's a sound effect that is used in a game. I thought it was the sound effect for when you die in Grand Theft Auto V. I looked it up and I don't think it is, but I'm sure that that is a frequently used sound effect. I've definitely heard that before. I'm going to make it my life's mission to find out where I've heard it before. I think it's in a game. Oh, what a fine ear you have. I didn't even notice that. But I th no, in fact, no, you can sack that off. I'm not rewinding this film and listening to that again. Yeah, it's not quite the Wilhelm scream, but I have heard it before. Shall we spoil Nocturne? Let's do it. At the start, the best musician kills herself. She commits suicide. One of our protagonists, Juliet, finds the dead girl's diary. It seems to unlock some kind of demonic music powers in her. She gains new confidence, sleeps with her twin sister Vivian's boyfriend, starts to stand up to her teachers, calling them losers and failures. Vivian is injured in a fall, and Juliet, who's Sydney Sweeney, whose performance we've been talking about, she is selected to do the big important performance that I don't know the name of. And in the end, she kills herself by jumping off a building while she's dreaming of giving the perfect performance. And what was your interpretation of that ending? Because just to add, after she kills herself, she is impaled on some sort of artistic monument that's been placed in the schoolyard, and everyone just walks past her, doesn't even notice the fact that she's lying completely and utterly dead within the school grounds. What did you take the meaning of this to be? 
when I saw that, I just thought this doesn't mean anything. It's just the ending they've come up with. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, it was just just like a shock ending of, Oh, is it real? I was entertained enough and I I didn't think about it too much. I suppose I should, if we're doing a movie podcast, but I just thought, Oh, this is interesting. This looks nice. And then started playing Ghost of Tsushima legends mode. That's fair enough. I'm not saying that you should be forced into forming an opinion where you didn't have one. That's fine. I took it to mean that she's played second fiddle all her life and she had the opportunity to perform at the highest level well, of where she is at career-wise at the minute. She bottled it, kills herself, but then even in death, she still lacks any form of recognition, which has pretty much been her whole existence because of her sister's success. So I thought that's what they were going for with that ending. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it did actually mean nothing, which I wouldn't put past the film because there's quite a lot of unusual things within it anyway. I'll transfer that opinion into my brain. I like that. And she dies on a work of art. So maybe there's something there around suffering for Mm. your art and things like that. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Nice bit of symbolism. Yeah. The diary, which we've referred to throughout this review, felt like a complete and utter MacGuffin to me. I feel like this film would have completely worked irrespective of having that plot element. Do you agree or do you think it added anything? It would have added more if it was explained what was actually going on with the diary, if we knew the source of it. The creepy teacher that I was talking about, it looked like he was going to know what was going on because this creepy teacher, he was the teacher of the girl that killed herself. And I thought he was going to say, I can unlock special powers in you, but there is great danger. You might kill yourself. But that didn't come to anything. It's not explained what the book is. I think it was good just to have something creepy there. It just made the whole thing more creepy. Shame it didn't explain it, but I think the inclusion of it was good. It's like an episode of Pen15 where the girls steal someone's thong and they take turns wearing the thong. And when they're wearing the thong, it gives them extra confidence. So it makes sense, I think, just to have this object that's granting this person special confidence and motivating her to not be very nice to people. And speaking about the diary itself... Obviously, I had quite a disjointed view and experience with this, but did you get to that point where she holds the diary up in the mirror and is like, it's some revelatory, like, oh my God, the writing's backwards. I could have told you that at the beginning. I could have told you that straight away. It looks like writing that is backwards. Was that what was going on or is it just me? Was it writing or was it musical notes? No, it was actual words written backwards. I thought it was musical notes that when she saw it backwards, she was like, oh, I'll play this song and it will unlock the demon. But I'll accept that you're right. I I didn't notice that. I just completely misread what was going on, unfortunately. Or I should keep my opinions to myself, and it was music. It's just I desperately need glasses, which has been the case for like three years. So it could could also be that. Can I ask whether you were under the impression that something entirely different was going on around the halfway point? So I'm going to give you my understanding of where I thought this film was going. So the book itself is a doorway into this girl who committed suicide, Soul, and she is fuming. She is pissed that somebody else is now taking her spot and is achieving musical success. So she had possessed the body of Juliet and was trying to exact her revenge through her body. And the only reason why I thought that was the case was that there's a scene between Juliet and her sister's boyfriend where they have sex and abruptly 
they stop making love and he seems really creeped out and says that he needs to leave. And I thought he'd seen Moira, who is the girl who kills herself at the beginning, in her and had also been having an affair with her at some point. I don't know why. That is what I thought was going on. I know there is some sort of demonic possession being hinted at anyway, but I thought she was purely and utterly being possessed by the spirit of the girl who killed herself at the beginning, which does not appear to be the case. I didn't think that's what was going on. That does sound interesting, though. Maybe more interesting than what we got, but I didn't think that was going on. I just thought that somehow looking at these images and looking at this music and playing this music gives you access to some kind of demonic power or it unlocks special knowledge within you. Sort of like how, and this is a stretch to link this film, what's the floating dildo film called with Amy Adams and Jamie Renner? This comedy. The, the way the aliens visit. I have no idea what you're talking about at all. The tetrapod aliens teach Amy Adams an alien language. Oh, Arrival. Yes, Arrival, the Dennis Vinover film. By learning this language, Amy Adams is able to perceive time in a non-linear way. And I thought that's what was going on here, that by reading this diary, again, it's not clear where it's come from, by reading this diary and looking at this music and playing this music, it allows you to access hidden potential. Yeah, makes sense. If you ever try and make somebody recall the name of that film, don't use floating dildo as a descriptor because you threw me right off track there. I'd had no idea what you were talking about. Positive-ish end to this welcome to the Blumhouse experiment in that we've ended with probably the strongest film of the bunch. But as a venture in general, bringing four films to the Amazon customers in the form of a horror extravaganza. Worthwhile exercise or not? I'm going to say yes, because if they hadn't packaged these four films together, I would not have watched them. I've watched four 90-minute films that were very different, were diverse in many ways, and I felt it was a worthwhile exercise. What do you think? Some of the same, but not as positive. I just think it's very, very mediocre. I think I'd said it last week, when a horror film tends to be okay, I will give it more of a pass than I normally would any other film. And I think that's just me. That's my nature, and I'm still doing it now. So even the films that I've been positive on, I don't actually think that they're worth seeking out and spending your time with. There's a lot better stuff out there, and specifically in the horror genre. I agree and liked the fact that there is a bit of writing here, whether it comes down to the ethnicity of the cast or the storyline or the fact that, ooh, it's a horror film that isn't a horror film. Shock. Biggest spoiler of them all. Three times. That became a bit tired after a while. So yeah, mediocre, executed well. No, not really. Give me the same thing next year, Mr. Jason Blum, but do it better. Give me a bit more quality. Hopefully there will be more quality next week. Our main review will be The Trial of the Chicago 7. And we'll talk about another famous 7, The 7, in The Boys Season 2. That was very nicely done. Do you want to take us home? Certainly will. Join us next week where we'll be doing all the things that James has already mentioned and we've got a habit of repeating each other in this episode, so I won't do it again. You can email us at inthehourspodcast at gmail.com or alternatively, you can reach out to us on the Instagrams. What's our Instapod handle, James? In the Isles podcast. Very good. And if you live in Virginia, 
please reach out to us. We want to know your name, address, sex, age, location. Yeah. ASL, mate. ASL. Let us know. For our American listeners, bon voyage. Oops,